When he was 12, David Velas made his first investment, a cow. Bought with birthday money and savings from summer jobs, that one cow eventually became six, which were then sold and turned into his college tuition at Stanford. After graduating, David spent a few years working in investment banking and private equity before he joined Sequoia Capital. As partner, he was responsible for all Latin American investments, leading him to move to Brazil in 2011. But shortly after that, Sequoia decided to pull back. The tech space was just not developed enough. David saw that as an opportunity, this time as an entrepreneur. Nubank is a pioneer in digital banking, even though it doesn't see itself as a bank. Rather, it's a tech company that happens to be in financial services. Now valued at $30 billion, Nubank is one of the fastest growing fintechs in the world with operations in Brazil, Mexico, Argentina, and Colombia. David is a father of three, a marathon runner, and him and his wife, Marielle, recently signed the Giving Pledge, committing to donate the majority of their wealth to philanthropy. In this episode, he shares how he manages his time as co-founder and CEO, the most culture-defining moments at Nubank, how to balance speed, growth, and quality in the long term, and some of the curveballs that could have changed his entire story. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam! Running the leading startup community in Latin America costs money, but some people are taking notice, so I want to take a minute to thank our early supporters. At Viva Real, we were an early customer of Zendesk. Other companies like Nubank, Loft, RD Station, they all use Zendesk to keep their customers happy. Zendesk for Startups offers Zendesk software for customer service and sales for free for six months. To learn more, head to Zendesk.com slash startups. Also, we're really happy to inform that Latitude Fellows now have access to a ton of extra exclusive benefits on top of the six months free, thanks to Zendesk's support of our community. Go to Latitude.com to learn more about the Latitude Fellowship and apply. I learned the hard way that lo barato sale caro. If I had worked with Gunderson from the beginning, maybe our company wouldn't have had to pay $100 million in unnecessary taxes because of our corporate structure. We're lucky to have their support along with Kerry Olson and Bronstein Zilberberg in developing one of our first products, Latitude Go. We want the process of incorporating companies in Latin America to be 10 times cheaper and twice as fast. If you're starting a venture-backed company, you can check it out at go.latitude.com. I've been banking with Silicon Valley Bank for over a decade as one of their first customers in Latin America. They're committed to the region and have made great introductions over the years. We want to thank them for their support of Latitude. To learn more, visit svb.com. Now on to the episode. Good, man. Thanks for coming on. This is fun. I'm glad we made the time. I'm glad we finally made it happen. Yeah, man. I mean, I appreciate this. I know you're a busy guy and it's hard because you're getting probably a lot of inquiries to do things like this. And so thank you for making the time. It's been 10 years since we met when you were at Sequoia. So time has flown by, man. That's amazing. 10 years. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. A decade. I remember having a meeting with you right in one of the small offices at Sequoia, right in the entrance by the lobby. That's right, man. That's that right. Awesome. I remember that. So uh, it's, it's wild, man. It's been a ride. Time definitely flies. But I want to get right down to it. I first want to thank our audience for some of the questions that people asked. Uh, there were some good questions that I'm going to incorporate here today. But you now, one thing that we both kind of have in common is that we're both these gringo founders, right? And we were both living in Brazil. And notoriously a country difficult to navigate, even for established international companies, let alone markets with strong incumbents. So let's just kick it off just to warm up here. How did you identify that Nubank was a good opportunity and what were the first 100 days? Take us through the first 100 days. Sure. So um, I think the Nubank opportunity was an opportunity that only a gringo would have been able to see. It's funny sometimes how your perceived weaknesses might, might actually be strengths. And I say that because in a market like Brazilian banking or even Latin American banking, there is a fair amount of commercial wisdom. There is a, you get to a point in your day-to-day -day with your day-to-day -day services that, especially when they don't work well, 
after a lot of frustrating scenarios that you conclude that this is the way things are, and this is the way things are always going to be. And when you deal with some of these big companies, there's always the, the, the sense that there's nothing you can do. There's nothing that anybody can do because you're talking about the biggest companies in the country or in the region. And so I, I, I think that you needed somebody from the outside that had a fair amount of naivete to say, actually, wait, hold on. How is it possible that these banks are treating people this way? How is it possible that people are putting up with this? Why aren't they going somewhere else? Why aren't there more alternatives? And at the same time, this is the most, this is the most valuable industry in Latin America. These are the most profitable banks in the world. How could you have on one end, uh, on, on one end really frustrated consumers and on the other end, the most profitable companies, some of the most profitable companies in the world, and nobody's actually doing anything about it. So I think gringos, and generally I would, wouldn't call it gringos, say just outsiders get to ask those questions. And for insiders, it's very hard to ask them because they've ingrained and they've lived in that conventional wisdom all of their life. So, um, so that's, that's a bit of the story. Like I did, I did go through that experience and I had a, and I had a bit of a prepared mind as I had spent a lot of time looking at financial services with an investor hat and knowing how attractive this industry was and also looking at technology, uh, at the technology sector with Sequoia to, to try to find opportunities to invest. So it's almost like this prepared mind meeting the opportunity with a fair amount of naivete and, and asking a lot of questions that ultimately translated into the opportunity of Nubank. And obviously, I think it's important to be an outsider. An outsider has a lot of opportunities, but it also brings a bunch of weaknesses with it. Like, I don't think I could have been able to execute this if I hadn't had a fair amount of insiders together with me. And that's where, that's where Chris, as a co-founder, come in. She's the perfect insider she knows the system inside out. She came from Itaú. She has a huge network of people in Brazil. She could access regulators. She's charismatic. She's extroverted. In a way, I'm a bit of the opposite some, uh, of her in some of those areas. So we were very complementary. And then Ed coming in as, as the technology co-founder, really helping build a technology strategy. So I think the outsider brings... Some advantages, but it's not enough. You need you need to complement the team with with real complementary people that ultimately fill are able to fill the gaps that you're going to have to be able to execute successfully. It makes a lot of sense the outsider perspective, having a fresh pair of eyes on something that normally the conventional wisdom is like this isn't possible, right? And I like the naivete, kind of the beginner's mind is something that I've always thought about just in general, and I think that's allowed for you to think differently about the situation. So adding to the last part of the question, and shout out to Adrian Garcia from Endeavor. I can remember vividly, I was in our, our little office in, in Villa Magdalena, and I remember get, I remember having the new bank card. I think I was probably, I don't know, one of the first 25. I tried to find the card for this interview to, to pull it up. Uh, I, I don't know. It's somewhere. I, I did save somewhere. it, but uh, I'm not in Brazil anymore, and, and I don't have any financial You should save it and do an anymore. NFT. There is already some NFTs flying around. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, man, I'm missing an opportunity here. And later I want to find out if I was customer number 22 or where I was on that just for bragging rights. But talk about those first hundred days. Cause I remember like a lot of our friends signed up and tell us how you got the flywheel going initially. Sure. And obviously it depends on when you start counting. I would start counting probably. So I had worked for maybe about three weeks putting together the pitch of the idea, doing the, the, the deck. And anyway, I had it very crystallized and then I had to go back to California to meet with Sequoia. I was still working sort of half with them. And that's when I presented the pitch and, and, and to, to some of the partners there. And initially they were like, ah, I don't know, this is a bank in Brazil, a seed, we don't really do that. And after a couple of meetings with more people, eventually at the end of the week, they were all excited and say, all right, fine, we're in, here you go a million dollars. Let's see what you can do. You got to find a local partner. And I remember very well, Doug Leone, who was my mentor there, like uh, right on the, right on, on the exit of the Sequoia offices, he gave me uh, like a, like a pat on the back and says, all right, let's see what you can do. And to <laughs> me, that was like, all right, gave me son, Doug, gave me son. 
And so maybe that was actually the moment because before, yeah, I had been working a lot on the presentation, but that was the moment where I said, okay, there's a million dollars. Now I got to do it. And I cannot fail my mentor. I can, I, I, failure is not an option. This got to work. And so from there, in the next hundred days, it was just, just, just a race to get it to, to form something out of nothing. Like this, this is an amazing process where you just, how do you take a slide of a bank in Brazil to actually building a bank? Like it's a, it's a massive endeavor. Uh, and a lot of it was kind of the dividing in pieces. The first piece was building that initial team and, and looking for that, those co-founders. And so it was just meeting a lot of different people like crazy, uh, 10, 15 different coffees per day until finally was lucky to find Chris and Adam with them. It was like, boom, it was great cultural alignment, perfect feed. They're both excited. They both accepted in like 48 hours. And once they were in, then it was the three of us doing the same thing. Okay, fine. What's the next? All right, we got to find some engineers and we got to find an office. And it was almost like looking at solving the following next problem. And it was about 12 months, obviously more than 100 days, but it was 12 months where we were building, recruiting the initial team up to 10 people and building sort of the skeleton that eventually took us to the first credit card issued that we could use in, in, uh, to buy stuff. But it was 12 months of just a ton of work, a lot of urgency, a lot of unanswered questions. You know, you just got to tell entrepreneurs sometimes if you, if you wait to get answers for all your questions before you start, you're never really going to start because there, there's just so much uncertainty initially. And that's totally okay. If there wasn't uncertainty, somebody else would have done it before. So it's a, it's a lot of it is like walking, is, is you answer, finding the answers as you find the questions. And if you have a great team of great problem solvers with a lot of sense of urgency and the conditions exist, then, then things will happen and, 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 you, and you get to launch and then you get to, to scale. Yeah, and let's fast forward a little bit. Those early days, you know, you talked about the first kind of year. There's a question from uh, Tomas here from Gueño. He asked, how did you manage your time in the early days as CEO and, and where did you spend most of your time? So I think I spent probably 30 to 50, 30% of my time hiring and interviewing it, what, what's interesting is, is that that's more or less what I still spend today. That actually hasn't really changed. I spent a huge amount of time in interviewing because I just think that that's one of the most important functions of any founder CEO. The, you are, you want to make sure, and, and not only necessarily interviewing, but now probably I spend part of that time in looking at the interviewing process and looking at the interviewing system because you go from interviewing one, 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 one to setting up systems that will go then do the formal recruiting for you. But if you don't have a system that is actively looking for the right type of DNA into the company, suddenly one day you wake up and you have a bunch of people that are doing something completely opposite, right? So I think the hiring function as a whole is will, was one of the most important ones, continues to be one of the most important ones for me. Beyond that, I think some of the things that have changed, obviously, I was very much in the weeds, really building. I was, together with Chris, we were doing product design. We were designing the first app in PowerPoint. Oh, this button should be here. And we picked the color, purple, and we designed the, the look of the first color. And we, I wrote the first welcome kit uh, letter. We, we wrote a letter for our first customers talking about what we were about. And I, and I wrote that letter. Chris wrote a lot of the comms. We both accepted emails from customers and, and took uh, phone calls from customers in our phones. We still do. I still respond to every single email that I receive from customers, but, but probably not as much percentage as, as, as a big percentage as, I, as we used to do at the time. And maybe what I'm doing more now than I didn't do that much is now I unfortunately have to do a little bit more managing than before. Before it was almost like, all right, this is what we need to do. Go do it. <laughs> Now it's a little bit more, I, I try to do that too, but it's a little bit harder. You do, I do have to spend time, more time with people, with different teams across the company trying to manage that. But, um, and I guess the last, time, the last part really was investors and fundraisers and, and like, let's call it external counterparts. These were regulators. These were partners like MasterCard. These was, these were investors. I think a 
a big percentage of what a founding CEO needs to be doing is selling. And you're always selling. You're selling former employees or potential employees. You're, you're selling to regulators. You're selling to investors. You're selling to partners. We, our, our project was pretty ridiculous for a lot of people. Like a lot of people were thinking, we, we need a banking partner. We probably talked to 20 banks in Brazil. They all said no. We needed a, a credit card network. There were two options. MasterCard said yes. The other one said no. So it's almost like if MasterCard said no, we were done. There are some clear points of failure when you're like between life and death. Regulators happened to like the idea. And they were very positive when we talked about competing with the big banks. They could have taken a different approach and said, no, 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 we don't want that. And the story would have been different. So I think a lot of what was just really, really consistently selling the vision, the mission, the culture, the project to a lot of internal, external corner parties. And, and you know, even now, that continues to be a big part of the role. It's interesting. You talked about these risks there. And like, I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs and sometimes they... Oftentimes, they'll try to like de-risk the opportunity by saying, no, it's a high probability we can succeed. And in your case, you're probably like, hey, this is going to be pretty hard. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. But if we get it, it's going to be really big. And I think that's a lesson for entrepreneurs once they understand how the dynamics of venture capital work and disrupting markets. So that's it's interesting. And talking about your previous role as CEO and kind of how that's evolved, sounds like it hasn't there's some areas where it's changed a bit, but then those things like you know, recruiting and being focused on the team, which is a good lead in to my next question, which is you've been able to really keep this culture. Like if I think of cases of companies really anywhere, Newbank is at the top of the list in terms of a strong culture, right? That's something that you've been able to attract a lot of people besides being an amazing product, people are attracted to the culture. So if you had to isolate one thing that you did well that allowed you to keep the culture, passion of the startup, what, what would you say that one thing would be? So there are, I don't think there's one silver bullet, uh, but if I were to main name thing, one thing, I would say it's setting a very clear culture since day zero. It's almost like the first thing that happens. We, I basically had two decks. I had the pitch to raise money and I had the culture deck. They both were created in parallel. And... It's not, and it was a bit different because sometimes you see companies that do this a year after, two years after, three years after. So you hear, oh, I'm too busy to think about culture when we grow and become profitable, then I'll, then I'll worry about that. And I think that's wrong. I think this is the most important thing that you can be doing and you need to be building that since the very beginning because that's the driving uh, force of almost every single thing that you're going to do. Sometimes I compare it with the constitution of the United States. Constitution of the United States has a set of values in that constitution that was that was done over 200 years ago, and even today, a lot of the U.S. Uh, value system and cultural system goes back to that document that was over 200 years ago. And when somebody asks you what the culture of the U.S., you can go back to a lot of those values and say this is you're talking about a country of 330 million people. Same thing happened to startup, and what we did was we had a culture deck, which was a or constitution. And it was the values, what we stood for. We're not here to build build a better credit card. We're not here to just run on our bank. Like that's that's actually that's big, but that was actually not exciting enough. We we wanted to be building something for decades. And so uh, it, it is a document that establishes very long-term goals. It talks about the five the values that we operate, having customer obsession as number one. And once that is clarity, there was clarity that allowed us to hire the right type of folks to attract the right type of people. And we use those values as a filter in the interview process. It helped us build the right type of product because ultimately the product, the app, is a reflection of those cultural values. The way we talk to customers and we respond to customers is actually a reflection of those cultural values. Sometimes I even go to the extreme and I say, customers don't buy our products. They buy our values. What they hear in that call, when they, what they see in that app, what they read in that email is the translation of a set of beliefs about a company. And so you need to have integrity across everything that you do. And having that, that clarity at the very, very beginning is very helpful in then going to do anything you do. Build a product, scale, hire 100 people, hire 1,000 people, hire 5,000 people. 
So that's the, I would say that's the most important thing that we do, getting that clarity in the first three months of life with the first 10 employees. But then there's a lot of different things that you can do to keep that culture alive. And, and it really is a bunch of small little routines and it has to do a lot with hiring the right type of people. It has to do a lot with letting go the wrong type of people. It has to do with the, the way you do performance management. It has to do with, um, you know, ultimately with making sure that those are true alive values that almost every decision that you do as a company is consistent with those values. And the fastest way to lose that culture is for the founders, for the executive team to do things differently than what those values are supposed to defend. So you got to be, it's all about like consistency and, and integrity of, 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 of a lot of those va- cultural values. Yeah. We talk a lot about just the virtues as a proxy for values because virtues are behaviors. And you hinted at that. You're like, if the exec team is not behaving a certain way, you can have a bunch of things on the wall that say something and then behave differently. Everyone is going to emulate the behavior. They're not going to emulate, they're not going to just do something because it's defined. They're going to look at to the leadership and say, is this something that we stand for? So I think of the Netflix culture deck, right, that they made public. And I, I'd asked you a little while ago, I'm like, hey, David, what's up with the, can we get a copy of the deck and put it out there? What's the resistance there to like, just tell the whole world about, you're at the point, first of all, copying Newbank's culture, good luck. That's trying to copy a sequence of DNA. It's not that easy. Well, maybe it is easy for scientists, but for a startup to do that, why have you preserved that and not put that out for the world? Because I think that it would help you attract people also. And it's also a great learning opportunity for people. Yeah, no, listen, there's no, we have no issue with sharing that at all. It's more about the way we have it currently packaged. It's it's a few slides that require a lot of, most, most of the value of the slides is actually the, the verbal commentary the to explain what those are, the narrative behind it. And without the narrative, they're actually pretty shitty slides. They're not, they're not great slides. <laughs> I think at some point I'll get it together and write an actual narrative and I'm be happy to share it around. It's something I've been meaning to do for a long time because I think it's important. It would be a great document to show to people at the onboarding or even put it in the website. But I, I just haven't gotten myself to do it. So All right. that's, that's, I I think that's, what, that's what's missing. I have a proposal for you. At some point, I would like you to take me through the deck and then you're recruiting me, you know, and then people can see what that's like. So I think that would be a cool thing for you to do because it would give the color on how you think and, and you wouldn't have to explain it. So anyways, at some point, we'll see if we can make that happen. But I'm happy to do it. And by the way, I give that deck, I present that deck every month to every single person that starts at Newbank. I'm looking for a job, can, David. <laughs> if you apply to one of our tour Vagas, if we accept you, then you'll get to join. So uh, I wait for your acceptance. Okay, I'm going to go in. I'm looking for a customer service. The customer service people at Newbank are amazing. I remember like being on some like road trip, like I had an issue and I sent like a WhatsApp or no, I sent a Facebook messenger message to your team. And like in three minutes, I got a response like, Got my thing solved. So like eat your own dog food when you say like customer service, customer centric. And I think people know that about you guys. But anyways, I'm going to, I'll look at the, the Vagas and see what, what's a fitting one for me. But <laughs> uh, if I make it, I would love to have that. You know, I think people would really enjoy that. I've been thinking a lot more about just working in public in general, because I just think it's an opportunity to kind of, it allows you to garner people's like belief in what you're doing. Cause you can put it out to the public. You learn publicly. So anyways, it's a, I'm, I'm seeding the idea for you so that maybe we can do that at some point, but I will go through the process. Don't worry. <laughs> All right. Perfect. So switching gears a little bit, at Latitude, we created something called, as you know, Breakfast Clubs. It's named after our, our little group that we had in Sao Paulo, where you, Tomas, uh, Kimball, uh, Daniel, we got together on a regular basis. And for me, I, I appreciated the community as, particularly as someone that didn't have much of a network and didn't know a lot of people in that kind of lonely journey of building a startup. I just wanted to ask you, what has the role of community, what has it played in your life as a role? Uh, it, those, those moments were really valuable to me. Uh, it was, and you remember, there was really, it was a really kind of candid conversation. I think ultimately, I think all founders are struggling with the same, the same issues. And these are, these are some of the problems I think that you don't really you cannot really find the answer in a business book. Uh, or, if, or if the answer is there, it, it, 
I don't know, like you don't really uh, digest carefully what, 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 what you should do in certain situations. So I think that role of community or that existence of community was very helpful. I wish it had been more. Um, I think you just get so busy in your day-to-day basis that one of the things that I think we could have done better as a company and I could have done better as a founder was asking more often for help and talking more often with people that have done this before. Sometimes the, the, the instinct is to like, let's just figure it out. Uh, I'm, I'm one of I'm one of those people that I like challenges, I like problems, but then I like to just sit in front of that problem as you know, as long as it takes until I finally crack it. And I and I don't I'm not great at going out and asking somebody, hey, have you done this before? And just spending 20 minutes with somebody that has done it before. So as a result, we as a company lost a lot of time. We reinvented the wheel so many times in so many different things that it just pains me to 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 uh to remember all the all the time that we've lost trying to reinvent the wheel, trying to re- trying to solve problems that people have solved before, that have been solved. So I think there's a lot of value to community, but I wish I had used it more. I wish I'd been more active. Me personally, as a company, we had we had to just open it up more and, and, and ask and, and try to try to get more knowledge from the outside, from, from knowledgeable, experienced people. Yeah, I agree, man. That sometimes it requires that just reaching out and I guess it's a, it requires a little bit of vulnerability to be like, hey, I don't really know this and I need your help. And that's something that a lot of founders kind of just try to shoulder everything and just kind of put everything on their back. And uh, a lot can be gained by having those conversations. And as you described also in one of our demo days, you know, you said something to the effect of one of the great things about the Silicon Valley is that if you want to talk to someone about growth or product management, you just go across the street. That kind of resonated with me because I think that when we were building our businesses in, you know, in the early days, there wasn't a lot of resources. And now the amount of like incredible entrepreneurs that have been built these organizations that have had executives that have scaled. I mean, there's a hundred people in Newbank that are just would be incredible mentors for someone else. And that's how the, the virtuous cycle kicks off, right? That's right. That's right. And that's how like everybody working together really leverage the knowledge and you can accelerate, you can do, you can build more in less time. You don't, have to dedicate energy and attention into reinventing the wheel, right? You can just use that time and do something different. 100%. So you became someone a lot of founders look up to. Who did you look up to when you were starting up? You mentioned Doug Leone as a mentor. Who was someone that you were like, wow, this, this is someone I, I look up to? Yeah, so, so several people. I, I, li- I, I worked very closely and looked up to Nigel Morris from uh, Capital One, who's now a QED. I had the uh, I had to start working with Nigel when I was at Journal Atlantic, and that's the first time that I that we went around Latin America looking at uh, SME banks. And I love seeing Nigel's like head exploded when he would get answers from these old banks about how they use data, and he just couldn't he couldn't imagine that that was the case. And and, and I just started studying a lot about the Capital One case study, and I was super enamored with with that vision of using technology and data. Uh, so he was somebody somebody I continued to look up after he became one of our investors and board members. So he's he's phenomenal. Um, and then there is a lot of companies that I've looked at. I think since the very beginning, uh, Amazon has been a big inspiration, especially the customer centricity. Because similar to them, we looked very closely customer centricity, customer obsession is our number one value. We spent Chris and I spent like an entire day in Las Vegas at Sapos looking at their customer service team and, and figuring out how to build that customer service uh, culture. So we were very inspired by Sappos. Chris is a big fan of Disney. We spent a lot of time looking at Disney. At the, at the, how do you create magic in, in the services industry? And we've sent people several times to, to Disney University. They have a university. They go there and, and there's some really interesting stuff. So, so we looked, we, we, we were very inspired about those companies that were so focused on customers. Uh, and based on that vision, they were able to effectively use technology to reinvent the entire industry. Uh, Netflix was another one that we looked at very, very closely. You mentioned the Netflix culture deck. That was a bit of the inspiration to have a new bank culture deck initially. And a lot of the values from Netflix are very similar to our values. We, we took a lot of the things that sounded really, that sounded right. And we, we imported those into into our context. So uh, those were some very clear inspirations for us at the very beginning. 
That's awesome. It's I actually did the culture camp at Zappos as well. Oh, cool. It was amazing. I, I remember I spent four in days. In Vegas? There. Yeah. It was an incredible experience. I mean, it's a, it's exemplary how they, the training there is insane. And they're just, they solve your problems and they're, you know, there's so, so, so much empathy. And uh, I remember the book from Tony Shea back in the day, and that was a yeah. big inspiration yeah. and a lot to learn from that. And you can see it's reflected in the, the new bank service. You, from the very beginning, you had a, this long-term mentality since, since the start. I'd say that's probably part of why new bank could balance this kind of growth and quality so well, which is a difficult thing for a lot of startups. Was there ever a time when you felt like you were moving too fast and breaking things you weren't supposed to? I mean, it's a bank, so you can't mess around with people's money. But tell me about that, or is there anything that comes to mind? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. Um, so I think that that view of long-term was, was something very clear for me personally when we started NoBank. I, I, I realized I'm very uncomfortable with fragmentation. I don't buy diversification. The old say of you have to diversify. Don't put your, all your eggs in one basket. It's probably the right advice. I don't like that advice. I, I, I just, per, from a professional perspective, I was never comfortable when I, before NoBank, I was doing venture capital and before private equity. And I was, you know, like 10 different companies and spending a little bit of time here, spending a little bit of time there. And I just never felt that I was, that I had the time to go really deep in understanding some, one thing very, very well. So part of the desire to build a company was to say, all right, I'm putting all my chips on the table on this. It's one big bet and it's the biggest concentration. Not only all my money was invested there, but it's also all my time and all my career and there's nothing else. Uh, and the other, the other point is I want to do one thing. I want to concentrate and do one thing for a very long period of time. I was tired of changing jobs. I was, again, I was tired of fragmentation. So to me, the opportunity of Nubank was exciting, shooting so high about building a financial institution because I knew it was going to take time. It was not going to be overnight. You don't build you know, something gigantic so quickly. And, and so picking banking gave me the luxury to think very long-term, gave me the right to say, okay, it's going to take a decade just to do a little bit. And then maybe there'll be another three, four decades ahead. So once that was clear and Chris and Ed were on the same page, what we did not want to do is, oh, we're building a startup and sell it two years from now to a big bank. That was, we, we all, the three of us were like, that's not, we don't want that. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but we don't, that's not what we want. So once that decision was made from that, it followed that, okay, we're going to build a skyscraper, very large skyscraper. Let's build the basis of the skyscraper with solid cement, right? Let's do things the right way. And, and, And building the basis of the skyscraper the right way means you own your own technology, you own the parent third parties. You own your own core banking system, even if it's hard. You um, you really own your destiny. You create a profitable business that can generate cash relatively quickly. You have good unit economics so that you don't need to be stuck raising money consistently. Uh, so you make a lot of decisions that have trade-offs. The trade-off is on the outside, it will look like you're slow. Because if you're investing 90% of your engineering time building the basis underneath the skyscraper for whoever comes outside and say, what have you been doing for two years? Like what, what the hell are you doing? In the meantime, your competitor has launched 10 different products or 15 different products. You guys are so slow. So it came with a, with a, with a trade-off, but we, we knew that that was the strategy that we wanted to follow. Eventually that should translate into speed. Uh, but I must say these, these are consistent conversation. And you know, by year four or five, we had a lot of competitors and we see somebody launching five different products. And everybody's like, oh my God, what the hell are we going to do? We're so falling behind. We got to go. And then there's pressuring to go faster. And sometimes we got to go faster. There are areas of Nubank where we can absolutely move fast and break things, right? There are areas where we can. There are areas where we can not absolutely not do that at all, right? When we, especially you mentioned having people's money. So for our business, it's not a one size fits all. It's a, we call it targeted friction. It depends on where you sit. You might need more friction. You need more, more quality or less. And you might be more willing to take risk and fail faster so that you can learn faster as well. 
So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's you, you got to have, ultimately, you got to be able to do both. You're going to be a marathon runner while you got to be able to sprint if you need to sprint. And that's not easy. You need two different speeds to be able to, do the, to, be able to run that race the right way. Yeah, it's, it's definitely tricky. And, and I think that given that you've had this long-term vision from the beginning, you kind of end up playing a different game than most people, right? When you're playing for the long term. So I think that's been a huge strength. We had the pleasure of having your sister Maria in the last cohort. And so I asked her to think of a good question that, that you haven't, maybe something you haven't shared before. So tell us a moment of desperation where you thought it was the end of Newbank. <laughs> great, uh, great question. Um, there've been a few ones. I didn't, none of them were necessarily like the end, but, but it felt that, that it was very close. We, in, I think sometime December, 2015, I wake up on a Friday morning and I read that via presidential decree, the government was going to change the way uh, the, the working capital flow inside Nubank, of course. In Brazil, all credit card issuers have 27 days to pay merchants. And so we have, as we grow, there is some flow coming in our way and we have some time to get the customer to pay and then we pay the merchant for those transactions. And then one Friday morning, I read in the news that there was going to be a presidential decree, not even, not even a, 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 a law that was going to be this current Congress. It was going to be a presidential decree in Brazil called a canetacio that was going to change those 27 days to two immediately. And that meant, as we did the math, that meant several billion dollars in like working capital needs. And that was pretty scary. And we we're like, why the hell? What a curveball. This is, this is such a strange thing happening coming so suddenly. And anyway, it was a weekend. I was, uh, I was, was going to fly with my family to Peru with my, with my babies uh, and, my, and my wife. I had to fl- fly to Peru, drop them on the airport. I flew back to Sao Paulo, spent the entire weekend with the, with the, with the entire company. And um, on Monday, we were in the Central Bank of Brazil basically telling them, hey, this is, this is nuts. Over the weekend, we have talked to some media and said this might be the end of Nubank and the end of any competition, not only Nubank, but any other small, the only, the only institutions in financial services that are going to be able to have that much available capital is going to be the five big banks. And so that law means even more competition. The five big banks, the, the nascent competition is out, is wiped out. And, and so the news and the journals were very public saying that law doesn't make any sense, uh, might be the end of the new entrants. And that day on Monday, as we were going to Central Bank, there were something like 10,000 customers in the Twitter of the Central Bank saying, this is absolutely crazy. What the hell is going on? You got to protect New Bank. You got to protect the early entrants. We need competition in this industry. It's really bad that you have five banks that are 85% of everything. And we spent an hour with the president of Central Bank saying, no, 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 no hold on. <laughs> Take it easy. It's not going to happen. You know, we get it. Um, nothing that is going to happen here. Don't worry. And nothing happened. Before you know that, you gather the troops. What do you tell everybody? <laughs> it was tough because that Friday we had our end of year party, and <laughs> uh, and it was tough. I was very, I was, I was concerned, and I had to give a speech, and because it was the end of the year, and I debated a lot because that was a, that was a very important moment for I think for the company. We could have done there could have been two ways. There could have been one way to say. Um, all is good. Don't worry. Uh, nothing's going to happen or nothing's happening. We are covered, even if we were not, even if we didn't have a plan at that point because it was too sudden. Or we would have come to entire company and said, yeah, we have a problem. And you know what? We don't have the answers, but we're going to go work pretty hard over the weekend and we're going to figure it out. But we don't have the answers right now and we're going to need everybody on board. We picked the second one. And it wasn't clear necessarily that was the right answer because people were really worried. But they were worried anyway because there had been a lot of news. Uh, and, but we were very transparent. And that was going back to the values. That was, that was the, what, what the Constitution told us that we should do. We, we treat our employees like owners, not renters. It's a value that we have. They're partners. We're all, all of this together. And what do you do to your partner? Do you tell them that everything is going to be fine? that you have all the answers or that you have a problem and we need to figure it out. You tell them, 
you tell them the truth the truth so we told them the truth people some people had a really shitty weekend the good news is on monday we figure it out and then we were able to have an all hands monday afternoon and we told everybody we figured it out it's all good no worries we got it we gave t-shirts for everybody we survived and it was such a culture defining moment because i think people appreciated that we had taken the the, the, the route of transparency, of honesty, of treating people like adults, not like children that you have to lie to, and, and that build a lot, a lot of trust with everybody in the company. So, uh, so I'm glad, we, I'm obviously glad that we, that we made that, but at the beginning, it wasn't really clear what the right answer was. No, I, I think there's a great lesson in there, and it's something that I learned the hard way in the early days, where you're trying to protect people by not telling them in, you know something that... You don't want them to be nervous or worried about something. And it actually has the opposite effect because you you obviously lose trust when it everything becomes exposed at, at some point. And two, you underestimate that people's willingness to just go in and tackle it with you and and carry some of that burden. And sometimes entrepreneurs underestimate their teams and in how people can step up and and giving people that shared burden allows people to strengthen, as you said. It was a defining moment in your culture. So I think that's a great. Uh, lesson for all the listeners to lean in that direction of transparency and and not delivering some of the, sometimes the bad news because then you can get people on in the problem solving mode of like hey people won't step up if they don't know what, what's going on and what the problems are so I think that's a great lesson there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think we we, we talk a lot in Sanomag that we want to whenever we want to visualize. Any decision that we do for anybody in the company, we have to visualize every person that works on Nobank as a as a world-class athlete that wants to be the best in the world at what they do. That, that's how we think about every single person. And so what, if you think about every single person that way, like an adult that wants to be the world-class champion in, you know, in the world, then as, a co- as, the, as the coach of the Olympic team, you tell them the, you, you tell them the good one, the bad one, and the ugly. You don't, you, don't, you don't hide it. You don't sugarcoat it. You tell them the right thing because ultimately that transparency, that honesty is what I is going to not only build a lot of trust, but it really allows the person to, to engage in the problem-solving aspect. And that's, that's exactly what you want. You want that type of problem, that engagement in problem-solving. So you got through that difficult moment. What was the moment that you noticed that this was going to be big? Did you always have this like confidence? that? But what was the aha moment for you as you're building the business? Yeah, so we, we had a bet with the, with the team once we launched, of how many customers we were going to get the first day. And the average of the, like let's say 15 people that were there at that time was like a thousand customers. And we launched, there was some news, we got 300. People are really bummed. We're like, oh crap, yeah, it's not gonna be good. And then the following day we got like a hundred. And then the following day we got like 50. We're like, oh no, this sucks. And, and so like the first two months or so post-launch was lower than we expected. And it was pretty disappointing. And then that was, and, and then we started the new year and sometime in like March, I think it was 2016, there a couple of new articles started to come up in specialist media around the product. And there was one day where we got 15,000 applications. And that was way higher than anything we had expected, obviously, until that day. And I think that was the day that there was that day and then that month that we said, this is going to be big because suddenly it just became viral. And then a lot of people started to apply. And we suddenly we had this like we had to create run and create this concept of waiting list, which created a lot of scarcity, which created a lot of more interest in the product. And so created like this like wheel of the more you said no, the more people wanted it. And the more applications we received, and, um, and so that was the moment we said, "Well, this this could be really big. This could be really, really big." And our goal for five years was a million customers. We ultimately ended up being did those million customers in two years. Amazing, yeah. And, and you, you were fortunate. There was a question from Alejandro Gomez de Grief from Aptuno about unit economics and the beginning of Nubank, you guys were pretty obsessed with unit economics from, from what I recall. And there's different mindsets of kind of grow at all costs versus being very conscious of that. It sounds like from the very beginning, you guys were quite aware of that, right? Is that a conversation you had early on where you're like, hey, we need to 
make sure that we grow this thing in a healthy way because it's tempting to want to just put the numbers up, right? Yeah, I think you you, get, you will remember this context well, which this has changed a ton, which in 2013, there were very few investors in venture capital investors in, in Brazil, right? It, it, that has changed a ton in the past eight, nine years where you have a lot of people willing to do series A's. At that time, you could count the number of venture capital investors in, in seed rounds or series A with one hand. And so we, and we knew how much capital this business is going to take. I mean, we're building a bank. So this is going to take hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. So there was a big question, will we ever be able to raise that capital? Who knows? That was a big risk. Um, and so because of that, I think that just forced a lot of discipline, financial discipline since the very beginning. Uh, and the good news is we were operating in Brazilian banking, which has structurally one of the best margins in the entire world. So different, let's say from a business like Uber, where the business hasn't really existed ever, and you really have a question about what the business model is. Banking is one of the oldest business models in history, has 3,000 years. And banking in Brazil is very profitable. So there was no business model risk in Nubank. No business model risk. We were building a bank. There were some risks around how do you allocate certain revenues and expenses. We were charging no fees, which meant we had to have way much more operational efficiency than the average bank so that the unit economics worked. So there were some bets in the PL, but over but the underlying unit economics were very clear and uh, and made sense since the very beginning. And then we monitored them consistently, continuously, especially as we start to grow faster. We looked at them very, very closely. Credit, which our first product was, is can be an atomic bomb. If you think about it, you can grow as much as you want with credit. You could get 10 million customers tomorrow and credit. People will line up the street because credit is effectively giving people money. So credit can give you infinite growth immediately. <laughs> What's hard is giving people the money, giving, trying to find the people that will pay you back. So uh, growth, there is very little question you can grow given credit to people. You will find that growth. What's really, really hard is knowing how to not blow up. And you can blow up easily, especially in a market like Brazil, and especially in the macroeconomic of Brazil of, of that of you know, the first eight years, which has been recession after recession, then pandemic. Uh, so blowing up, not blowing up credit while growing really fast has been something that we've, we just had to take very, very seriously since the very beginning. And we've been actually conservative. People think that we, we're very, we've been aggressive on the credit side. We've actually been conservative. There's probably 20% of our customer base that we had said no, that we should have said yes. And, and the biggest weakness of our product today in credit card is limits are still too low. And that's because we're still too conservative because that just comes from a legacy of, of being conservatively biased. So, so yeah, so we, 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 ver- we monitor economics very, very carefully just because we didn't, we think we didn't have really any other option. Uh, and it was very easy to lose control given the business that we operated in. That makes a lot of sense. I got another great question from Maria. She was helpful in some of these questions. So this is more of a, a personal question. What's been one of the hardest curveballs that's been thrown at you. I told her to give me a question would enable you to share something. So maybe she knows something I don't know, or maybe there's there's nothing there. But what is something that that you've had to adapt to uh, in your life, not necessarily on Newbank? I think that was. Uh, you remember also since the very beginning, I was I started working with Sequoia to look at Latin America uh, venture capital. I always wanted to start a business, but when Sequoia showed up and said, "Hey, help us do VC in Latam," I said. Yes, that sounds awesome. And I joined them and I graduated from business school, moved to Brazil, got an apartment, got an office for Sequoia and got ready to start the Sequoia. We even opened the, the legal entity in Brazil, Sequoia Capital Latin America. And I was all ready to start, you know, writing checks and get ready. And remember very well, the day before my birthday, I was about to fly to California for one of the partners meeting at Sequoia. Doc called me and said, Hey, David, we just had an internal meeting here. We decided to stop completely, full breaks. We're not doing Sequoia, Latin America. doesn't make any sense for us. Uh, the project is over. And I was like, okay, thank you. I'll fly. 
I'll fly and we'll, we'll talk about it. That was a huge curveball. I was like, I remember hanging out the phone and said, shit, yeah, now what? Uh, I'm out of a job. Doug wanted me to go back to California and, and keep investing and do emerging markets, growth equity, but I didn't want to do investing anymore. I didn't want to be living in California. So, so that, that was a curveball. I, d- I definitely did not expect. But again, in hindsight, that was awesome because that was the moment where I say, all right, what do I do now? And to me, it was like, this is the moment then to let's finally become an entrepreneur, which is what I've always wanted to do. No more delaying, no more excuses or procrastination. Let's do it. So it was the best curveball I, I could have received. For the baseball analogy, you hit it out of the park, that curveball. So wrapping up here, Serrano con broche oro, como dicen en Colombia. How does it feel to have Bill Gates sending you congratulatory tweets? <laughs> very, very awkward. Very odd. When I saw, when I saw that, I was like, what? What? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, that, that was pretty amazing Like to, to see somebody like Bill Gates. And, you know, I see you as someone who's down to earth and humble. And David, you're now, as you know, one of the most wealthiest people in the world, which is kind of crazy. And my personal observation is that when someone acquires massive amounts of wealth, it tends to kind of magnify their existing personality. So someone that's a difficult person becomes more of an asshole, Someone that's kind becomes more good-hearted. This is my, my psychology, armchair psychology, right? Where does this extreme generosity come from? And can you tell us more about that conversation that you had with Marielle when you're like, hey, we're going to make this pledge. Like, take us to that conversation. Yeah, sure. So listen, uh, you know, we've been very, I mean, I, I've been, I've never expected this level of this level of success. I've never expected the, the growth of Nubank as quickly as possible. We knew it could be big, but we never imagined this could be as big and as fast that it has happened. Um, I think especially as I, I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs that have gone through this journey know every time you close a new round and you see more zeros next to your valuation, you're like, wow, like, what is this? And then another one comes in bigger and then a bigger and bigger. You're like, what is happening? I don't think really people expect this, uh, and, and so I think over the past, let's say, 12, 18 months, we, 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 we continue to see this, this growth. And, and, and it just made us ask us a ton of different questions um, and reflect very profoundly about, about what, those, what all of this means. And we wrote the letter, we wrote a letter here on, on the Giving Pledge and why we do it, but it's, it's, a, product, it's a letter, a uh, product of, of a lot, maybe like a, a year of, of, of really thinking about the question. And it's a number of different things. First... We feel extremely lucky. Uh, we feel extremely lucky of having been born in the families we were born, in the conditions that we were born. None of us were born necessarily in wealthy families, super wealthy, but, but we we had enough to go to good schools and and, and access good opportunities, and be, even more that having parents that 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 really cared about us and educated us and, and instituted a lot of values in, that that were important. So. That's really important, that's valuable, and that's not common. That's actually uncommon. So, number one, we feel very, very, very lucky and privileged. Number two, we feel when we look at Latin America and we look at technology, I know one of the, one of the bets of Nubank initially is that all industries in all geographies will be massively disrupted by technology companies. I was trying to dig in this data, but something like only 2% of the market cap of Latin American companies was created in the past 20 years. Only 2%. That's compared to something like 25% in the US. So in the next 20 years, you're going to see an enormous amount of Latin American companies that will disrupt all industries in all Latin American countries. And what technology creates is extreme outcomes, extreme outcomes in terms of numbers profitability and wealth. These, these, these outcomes, these companies are going to generate an extreme amount of wealth. And so when I think about that extreme outcomes, and then I look at Latin America as a region with so much poverty, I can only, I can only imagine just a um, lot of instability in all the countries that we operate if that inequality doesn't get solved, doesn't get resolved. And 
you could arrive to this conclusion from a number of different ways. Uh, you could, a lot of religious, very religious people will, will have sort of the religious morality that you have to give uh, something to, you know, to, to, to back to society. We're not necessarily religious, but we, we do feel a moral imperative to give back. But even if you don't feel anything morally, just, and if you just think about how do you sort of, how do you make this system, these countries self-sustaining, you would be incentivized to give almost everything back because otherwise this inequality is going to create so much instability that the entire system in all of these countries is going to collapse. I don't see any other way. People will collapse. You cannot have these extreme outcomes. So you could, you could choose your own different path and each person will go and follow their own path. But at least for us personally, we concluded that the right way for us is to give back a lot of the extreme outcomes back to society. And that's a better allocation for society. That's almost like a more efficient outcome for society because then two other things. First, there is diminishing marginal returns to wealth. At some point, once you have food and house and car and clothes, and maybe you take a couple of trips and you get some luxuries, there is very fast diminishing returns. Your additional $10 million is not really going to bring you that much happiness. But if you grab those 10 million and you give it to somebody that doesn't have something to eat tonight, the value they're going to get from that is so enormous, right? If you grab that money that is somewhere in some bank account in New York and you put it and you give it to somebody that is desperately needing cancer surgery and has been waiting for six months in a public hospital, there is so much more value in that money there than in a bank account in the Cayman Islands. So... Also, from an efficiency perspective, it's just more is a better outcome, we think, to grab money that is not being used and give it to people that can use it better. So that's one thing. And the second argument is, and this is this is something I think maybe the way has historically worked, especially in Latin America, is we do not want to give all that money to our kids. We just don't want to do it. We think we don't believe in dynasties, we don't believe in like you know, kids growing up in these gold cages with ton of nannies uh, and, and just living this real life. I don't want to make a moral um, judgment here, but the reason why I don't believe in that is when I look back about what made me and made Marielle is a lot of the biggest, most formative experiences were times where things were not easy for us and we had to work really freaking hard to get it that sense of desperation that you don't have something and that you desperately need it. And that becomes a motivator for you to go get it. And then you get it. It's priceless. There is no money in the world that can buy you that. And we want our kids to feel that we want our kids, the three of them to feel the hunger, feel the desperation, feel that they can go and work hard and get it. And ultimately the, 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 the self-accomplishment, the, 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 the um, self-esteem that comes from, having fought and having won. And if we were to take that path of just, here you go, unlimited money, you take that away from them. And I don't want to take that away from them. So I think from a number of different reasons, either if you have an efficiency argument, a morality argument, a religious argument, uh, education argument for your kids, all, all paths for us lead us to the, the right thing for us to do was just give that money back. And more than that, use what has allowed us to earn it to allow us to spend it the right way. Giving money is actually not that hard. I was making the analogy with credit. You can just give it away. But I think what's special is there are certain, we've been blessed with certain problem-solving abilities that allowed us to make that money. We should also use that time and those skills to invest that money the best way possible for society. So it is going actually, I think the, the commitment we're doing by setting up our own family foundation, which is something that we want to do it the right way. We want to do it with world-class people. There's nothing in Latin America that has ever been like this. Uh, I spent time with Bill Gates talking about the, the Gates Foundation. And that's probably why he even, he put that Twitter and he was, he was, a, he was a big part of the example. He, he was very general with his time. Uh, we want to build something that is an institution that will really think structurally about these problems 
and be disruptive and almost use a lot of what we've learned building NoBank uh, around philanthropy and, and solving our problems and deploy that capital the right way. So, so anyway, Amazing. super long answer to your question, but that, no, those are some that, that, of the elements I think that have gone. What's very evident is you've given this a lot of thought and uh, that's like, it's super admirable. And I've always thought about like philanthropy is something that I've always been drawn to my mom and dad listen to this podcast, so I have to give them a shout out because they had this amazing balance. My dad is an entrepreneur, mom, essentially a social worker, and the, the two of them have this really nice balance. I feel like a piece of both of them is in me. And so setting that example and also creating those artificial barriers for your kids, I can really relate to that. I think about that problem where it's like my kids are not going to have to struggle a lot. I've got to almost create some artificial barriers because you're robbing them of that, you know, those things like... To, to overcome. And, you know, you learn so much and you grow so much. So, man, it's really admirable. And it's like, it's super impressive, David. It's like, it's wild to think of, of how far you've come with this. And like, you know, the fact that you're still young and you've got all these years ahead of you to like make this massive impact and apply those things that you've learned at Newbank is super exciting. So, yeah, man, I'm looking forward to having that conversation. I'm eager to, to have my onboarding at Newbank with this culture as a <laughs> cultural warrior. So I'm going to take you up on that. I will go through the application process first. But Perfect. Um, thanks for your time. I know you got to run. We're a little bit over, but really enjoyed the conversation. That was great. Good seeing you. Thank you, man. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with David Velas, co-founder of NewBank. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply to our fellowship program and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts for more talks with great founders and investors like him. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.